So, I, w- I was toying with being pretty mean this morning. I was telling the elders ahead of time. And, and I was thinking of asking how many of you are trying to lose weight like me. So I'm trying, no, you don't have to answer. I don't want to embarrass anyone. <laughs> but I'm trying to lose some weight and, and get in a little better shape. And that's been a, a little bit of a process. So then I was going to, after I asked that question, I was going to bring a couple dozen donuts and offer them just to the people who are trying to lose weight. And I thought, this will not go well. This, I will get emails, I will get hate mail, and my tire slash, no. But we joke about that, but the donuts would be a temptation, right? They would be a temptation maybe too great to pass up if you haven't had breakfast, and you're sitting here, and you're like, donuts. It's like in the evening when Susie says, do you want a dish of ice cream? There is no other answer except yes. I don't care when I've eaten it, it does, because that temptation is too great. But this morning, I want to talk about temptation, and we have different ways we can look at temptation. Those ways are sort of fun, and, and yeah, okay, I'm tempted to do something, but I really don't want to. But in the Christian life, we struggle with temptation. Everyone in this room, this side of eternity, struggles with defeating temptation. Sometimes some elements of d- temptation that just grab us and seem to have control of us, sometimes things that we've had some success over. But this morning I want to dig into that and and start with a question, why is it hard to resist temptation? And don't think donuts, think bigger. Think think life. What makes temptation so tempting? It looks good. Absolutely. Feels Feels good. So there's something appealing about it, right? Uh, yeah, I'm not tempted by broccoli. It, it's just that, yeah, there's something appealing. Okay, so consequences, distant or a maybe. So we live in the here and now. I want this, and I don't really see or process the consequences. Good. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> I'll exercise later today. What else? Immediate gratification, and we live in a culture of immediate gratification. You want it, you want it now. And, and yeah, the typical examples are the microwave. I think the credit card, though, has, has accomplished more in our culture of moving us that way, as well as media. We, we, we want things, we have a way to get them, so why not? So all of these things are, are, are things that go into why temptation is difficult and why it's a struggle for us. And there's other things and that, that we'll dive into today. And what I'd like to today is we, we come into the next stage of Jesus' ministry. Jesus has just been baptized. We talked about that last week. And that signified God starting his ministry. It was God's stamp of approval that says, okay, I'm sending you out to minister. And, and Jesus is walking by the Spirit, as we'll see again in this text. And he's obeying God and following God. And so you would think that the next thing would be some grand entrance into Jerusalem because ministry of the king, the Messiah, has started. And we're going to find out from this text that instead, God says, through the Spirit, I want you to go to the wilderness. Go to those hills right above where you you were baptized, right above where John the Baptist was ministering because there's going to be some testing. There's going to be some 
some time where you experience temptation, but you also are experiencing closeness with God in preparation for ministry. And, and that's the setting that we come to today as we find out that Jesus went through temptation and we explore how, how he combated that, how he had victory. And so I'd like to start actually by not going to Luke. So turn in your Bibles to Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. And this verse, I I think, gives us a framework or an understanding of where I want to go today and how I want to view this story today. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. Because we're answering a couple questions in this story. What kind of Messiah is Jesus going to be? Is he fully God? Is he fully man? Is he a credible example to follow? Or is he going to fall just like you and I? And in Hebrews 4, 15 and 16, we read, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, or in every way has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace. We sang about both of those this morning. That we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And I start there because that's the, the, this is sort of the, the writer of Hebrews looking back and looking back at the life of Christ and, and processing some of this for us and saying, Jesus understands. We don't have a, a God, we don't have a high priest who can't understand, that doesn't get it. Because he was tempted in all points or in every respect as we are. Yet he succeeded He was without sin. And I love the next verse because that is what allows us to go to Him for help. That is what allows us to look at this story and say He's an example for how we can defeat sin. He did it. He did it. You know, I I think of if if I'm following someone's example, it's good to follow someone's example that that succeeded, right? If If you have a study partner in class, you call it students, do you pick the worst student? No. I, I was a college professor, and I always marveled at some of the ways people cheated. Sometimes people would cheat off the worst person in class. I'd be like, you can't even cheat well. If, if you're going to cheat, cheat on someone that, off of someone that knows what they're doing. And, and it, just, it just was amazing to me that people didn't get, we want to follow an example of someone that passed the test. And so when we come to this verse that says Jesus is able to help, when we come to looking at his example, he passed the test we're going to find today. He was tempted in every area and never failed, not even once. He was without sin, so he can be the perfect sin bearer. And so he is someone we can go to. So this morning I want to talk about temptation. And we'll talk about some various aspects of temptation, sort of give you a roadmap. I'd like to start with just some helpful truths about temptation, some reminding ourselves of some things we know that give us a foundation to even process the story by. And then the bulk of our time we'll spend looking at the temptations themselves and seeing what was the nature of those temptations. How was Satan trying to derail the Messiah? And then we'll end by saying, what can we learn? What can we do to avoid temptation that Jesus did. So turn back with me to Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. 
And as you're turning there, I'll go through some of these, these preliminary truths, these helpful truths. The first one to remember with temptation, and, and temptation's a big subject, so these are just some that, that I think pertain to the text today. The first is Satan is, is real and does tempt us, but our own flesh does an effective job of it too. Catch that? Satan is real. He tempts us, but our own flesh also does a, a really powerful job of tempting us as well. You know, sometimes I, I hear different extremes of this. Sometimes I hear people that give no credit to Satan. Okay, Satan doesn't even exist. In fact, just a few years ago, they did a survey in America. 57% of Americans don't believe Satan exists. Think another survey right around the same time came back and said only 35% think Satan exists. And so one of our problems is we have, a, we have a whole group in America that now thinks Satan's a myth. Santa Claus, the Easter Bunny, Satan, Jesus. And so they give no stock or no um, bearing on the power that Satan has. But then that pendulum can swing all the way to the other side, right? And we can think Satan has too much power. And we can think Satan can control us and that there's no way to defeat him. That's not helpful either. And so either one of those really prevents us from dealing with temptation. One minimizes temptation. One thinks, has a defeatist attitude and thinks we can't win. And so those things, we just have to, to dispel that and say Satan's real. He tempts us. Our own flesh tempts us too. Satan is not omnipresent. He is not God. And so as James says, each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desires. And his desires, when they are meditated on, when they're conceived, they give birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So Satan is real. It does tempt us, but our own flesh does an effective job of that too. It also helps us take some personal responsibility for our sin and temptation. Uh, Sometimes I hear, well, Satan made me do it. No. No. Satan cannot make you do anything. He can suggest but he cannot make you do anything. Don't give him more power than he deserves. Second, just helpful principle, temptation often is a perversion of what is good, right? And we, we talked about this in men's study yesterday. It, it, Satan tempts us with things that are perversions of what is good, and that sometimes makes them more tempting and, and makes it harder to draw a line between when is it sin, when is it good. You know, gluttony is a sin, but we, we don't stop eating, Food is good. And that's a silly example. You know, workaholism. Men, we are called to work. We are called to produce. We are called to provide for our families. That's a good thing. Workaholism, where we ignore God and ignore our family, is a perversion of that. God has given within marriage the beautiful gift of sexual relations. But Satan tempts us to pervert that and take that out of God's intended path. And so Satan, he's far more effective at taking the good and perverting it because then it's harder for us to draw the line of, okay, when is this sin, when is it not? Although God's word helps us with that and is clear about that. Third foundational principle, temptation often is stronger when we are most vulnerable. And this is something that when I finally figured this out, it helped me in my battle against temptation. Because I knew there were certain times that it would be harder to resist temptation. When you're tired, it's hard. Just practically, right? When you are tired, it is easier to slip, maybe into anger. It's easier to slip in just about every way. 
when you're, when you're struggling with, with being depressed or being down. It is hard. We're more vulnerable then, and we need to be aware of that. Those of you that are married, if you've just had a fight with your spouse or you're not getting along with your spouse, that is when Satan is going to tempt you with infidelity and pornography. Because now there's another option and the grass is greener and they always understand. And, and so we have to understand that Satan is not dumb and temptation is often stronger when we're most vulnerable. Fourth thing there that just a, a foundational principle, there is always a way to defeat temptation. These are things you know, but, but we need to remind ourselves there is always a way to defeat temptation. It is never so powerful that we have no options. In 1 Corinthians 10.13, a familiar verse, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful and will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, He will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. Cut and dry. Temptation always can be defeated if we go to God. If we seek him. Another principle out of that verse is is number five there. You're not alone in your struggle with temptation. That's another lie that I've heard from Satan. And I've heard people talk to me. Well, I'm the only one that struggles with this. Or I'm the only one that struggles with this. And and Satan uses that to, to press in on us and defeat us again. Because then it seems impossible. What did Paul say to the church of Corinth? No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. What did we read in Hebrews? Jesus was in in a few points tempted like we are. He was in every respect tempted as we are. That doesn't mean he had the exact same temptations. He wasn't tempted with an iPad, but but there were other things and, and the nature of those temptations he went through. And so those are just some foundational things that I want us to remember as we come to the text. So now we'll jump to Luke chapter 3. And, and you may be looking at the verses thinking, you, you're saying you're starting at verse 23. I don't get it. Because 23 through 38 are the most exciting verses there. It's the genealogy. So, so here's what's happening. Luke specifically puts this between the baptism and the temptation to show the humanity of Christ. To show the humanity of Jesus that he was fully man. And so this is, I would call this a preface. It's a look at Jesus' pedigree. And for them, genealogies were very important. That is how you identified what line you were, what your status was, what your role was. Now, for us, genealogies are important. I've heard people say, hey, I go back to George Washington, or I go back to Christopher Columbus. And I'm thinking, that's nothing. I go back to Noah. Right? No, but we use that for status and to somehow say something. And so that's what's happening here. We're not going to read through the whole um, genealogy. You can do that on your own sometime. Um, but just a, a couple of interesting things. In verse 23, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age. Typical time of, of, of in culture of where you'd enter public service. That's about when the priest begins service. That's when Joseph entered the Pharaoh's service, interestingly enough. David, King David, started his reign at 30. So there was something about this age that this was, this was normal in culture, that this is where you'd start. It's about, it's an approximation. He's probably a few years older than that. But then he gives the genealogy, being the son as is supposed. Remember, Luke is, is who also gave us the, the theology of the virgin birth. And he's, he's reinforcing that. People think he's the son of Joseph. We, we all know he isn't. 
We all know the Holy Spirit came on Mary. But, but here's his qualifications anyway. And he goes through and gives this list. Now, Matthew also gives a, a genealogy, and there's some, uh, a lot of similarities. There's a few differences, and that's a discussion we can have offline if you want. But a, a couple of differences are significant. One is that Matthew only goes back to Abraham, whereas Luke here goes all the way back. If you look down at the end to verse 38, where does he go back to? Adam. And so he traces Jesus' lineology, or genealogy, lineage, all the way back to Adam, and it's intentional to say he is qualified to save mankind because he is fully man. He is a man. He was perfect, but he's the second Adam, and we're going to see that in Paul's writing. We're going to see that here. He succeeded where Adam failed. And so Luke is bringing all this in and, and bringing all this together. He was fully man with a human pedigree. Only a man could be a substitute of sin for mankind. A dog can't die on the cross for your sins. A God that is just a God can't die on the cross for your sins because it's not an appropriate substitute. Jesus had to be fully man to be a substitute for our sins. Praise God. And Luke is bringing that out. There's a couple of other interesting things. You see some familiar names. You see David and Jesse. You see Abraham. You see the patriarchs. Um, I, I like that you see Methuselah. I think that's pretty cool. Um, but you know, look through that sometime. Look at some of the names. Um, you know, this is a little different from the... Uh, when it comes to Joseph and right around Joseph, it's different from the, the genealogy in Matthew. Uh, basically, we aren't sure why, but there's several options. One is, is a lot of people think Luke is a, a genealogy tracing through Mary's line and that Matthew is tracing through Joseph's line. That could be. Um, another option is, is it looks as if one at times is a legal genealogy and one's a physical genealogy. And if you remember, if a father died, then a brother would marry the wife. Or if there was no brothers, a relative would marry a, a wife. And we have a couple cases in here where it looks like we're dealing with a Leverite marriage and that one of the genealogy takes the birth father and one of the genealogies takes the adoptive father. And, and that, I, I think that's probably the most realistic because I think that happened a lot, especially with, with um, younger mortality rates and things like that. And so, but we don't know. And so we're not going to spend any more time on that this morning. But know that it's saying Jesus is qualified to save mankind as a full man. Abraham's in there because it's saying Jesus is qualified as a, a member of the Abrahamic covenant. And he will be fulfilling that covenant. King David is included in there because it's showing his messianic qualifications. He is of the royal line. He is qualified to be king. And so that genealogy, it's not just to get you to fall asleep. It's, it's showing Jesus' qualifications. So now we come to the temptations in chapter 4, and that's the preface. And we come to the temptations, and there's three temptations, and, and I, I, I want to talk about them and sort of categorize the, the lower level of them. What is Satan trying to do? What is he appealing to? Really interesting. For those that came to Men's 33 yesterday, a great group, and, and we studied some of the, the root causes of sin. These three actually map to the same three we studied yesterday morning. So just know that you're going to get some of this twice, and that's, that's okay. First thing we see in verses 1 through 4 is we see the temptation to put my wants and my needs above God. To 
to when I'm choosing between God's way and my way, choosing the way that is most convenient for me, most comfortable for me, that, that just fulfills my desires. And so I want, I see, or I see, I want, I take. We come to the verses in 1 and 2, set up the story, 3 and 4, get into the temptation. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days. And I've got to stop there for just a minute. Whose idea was it that Jesus go to the wilderness? What was that? The Spirit. God is directing. And, and this is one of those themes we said, look for in Luke. Look for, look for how many times he mentions the Holy Spirit. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. And that second one is sort of an ongoing, the Spirit was leading him while he was in the wilderness. And so right from the start, Luke is portraying Jesus as the perfect man. You know, sometimes uh, we think about the question, could Jesus have sinned? A great discussion. We can, we can have that later too, because that's a long discussion. But here's the thing, whether or not he could have sinned, he didn't, and he stopped it in his humanity. So the question about if he could sin is, could he as God sin? It didn't get there. That's the second wall, and we could discuss that. That's an interesting discussion. But the first wall, he stopped temptation as a man, not tapping in to his divine attributes. Now, some of you might be like, what? This is part of emptying himself. He chose not to exercise those divine attributes. So what we see in the story is Luke is incredibly intentional about saying he stopped them by the Spirit. He used Scripture, and we're going to talk about some of those things. But as you see this, see Hebrews, hear the verse from Hebrews that says, he was in all points tempted as we are. If he couldn't do it, it's not a temptation. I'm not tempted to go take over Alaska and make it my kingdom. Alaska's beautiful, really, right? Welcome back. It's not in my even range of opportunity. And so Jesus was tempted as we are. And he stopped it as a man walking with God perfectly. Man, that's, that's so important to understand. He was led by the Spirit in the wilderness. That's the place where so much testing happened. And he was there for 40 days, we see in verse 2. And, and that's a link to so many different things. That's a link to the children of Israel being in the wilderness for 40 years. Moses was on Mount Sinai for 40 days. Elijah wandered through the wilderness after the, the Baal success for 40 days in depression. And it's a, a sign that Jesus is identifying with those times of testing. He's identifying with mankind he came to save. But it goes on to say he was being tempted by the devil. And, and, and Satan is using this as an opportunity. He thinks an opportunity to, to derail God's plan. What happens if he gets Jesus to sin? Think about that. What happens if Jesus sins? What does that do to the cross? Is Jesus dying for our sins now or his sins? Right? So now we're all still in our sins. He now, think about what it does to the Trinity and the unity of the Godhead. If Jesus sins, he now has torn and ripped apart the Godhead. And, and I don't understand that. I don't even understand on the cross how, how we see, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That, that is a mystery to me that is amazing. 
and part of our salvation. But this is a key moment where Satan is trying to foil God's plan and keep his kingdom. But still, it was God's plan for Jesus to go because he's going to prove his qualifications. Jesus faced this temptation as a spirit-filled man. Leon Morris said, throughout these temptations, no special resource is open to Jesus that isn't open to us. That's, that's really incredible. That's encouraging. He was a, Jesus knew he was the Son of God, but he resisted as a real man, fully depending on God for strength. So then we finish verse 2. He ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. He's vulnerable. He's weak. And so Satan appears. And in each of these, I put two little sections in your notes for Satan's tempting words, his speech, and then Jesus' response. And we'll go through these, these pretty quickly. The, Satan here jumps in and he says, the devil says to him in verse 3, if you are the son of God, and you've heard me talk about the, the Greek language before, you have if and it's probably not true, and you have if and it is true. And this is that, that condition, a first class condition. He's more saying, since you're the son of God, let's prove it. Okay? So if you're the Son of God, command this stone to become bread. Jesus has just fasted for 40 days. He's hungry. Is there anything particularly evil about eating bread? I don't want to hear from my my gluten-free people at this point. (laughs) That's a a different topic. But no, it's not particularly evil to eat. In fact, it's good to eat. And so Satan is using something good, but he's perverting it. Because God's plan was for him to be there fasting and spending time with God. He's dedicated to this. And so Satan, what he's saying is, you don't really have to go through this to be close to God. You don't really have to. You have this need. You have this want. Just fulfill it. And it's an appeal to his desires and wants over what God wants for him. Does God's plan for us ever conflict with our desires? Oh, yeah. We desire comfort and ease and convenience and everything we want. And God doesn't work that way because that's not good for us. It's not healthy for us. And so Satan here is tapping into a desire for stuff, a desire for comfort, the lust of the flesh. Turn these stones to bread. Take a shortcut. Don't follow God's plan. Do what you want. In fact, you're God. Don't you deserve it? You're the son of God. Would, really, really, would, would God deprive you of food? Would God the Father deprive you of food? Does this sound like the garden? Oh, God knows that you'd, you'd, you'd know good and evil. You'd be like him if you ate that. Oh, he, And Satan is twisting. He's twisting what God affirmed in the baptism story that you're my son of God, my beloved son in whom I love. You're the beloved son and he's making you go hungry? What kind of dad treats his son like that? And we see Satan trying to get in some doubt of God's voice, of God's plan. And I I look at this one and I think, 
on one hand, it's just bread, but then I think, how many times are my desires so big to me that I can see nothing else? That I pursue them, and that's what I think about during the day. And, and our desires can become our God and our idol. And we can play on this and say, well, a, a fair God, a loving God would want me to have this. And when I don't get it, that's where frustration come in, comes in. Frustration is, a, is an evidence of this sin, of this temptation. Because we get frustrated when? When things don't go our way. When we don't get what we want. I, I know this. In the car, when someone cuts you off or you can't get somewhere, I get frustrated. I fight it. And it's simple, but I'm not getting what I want. It's, it's, it's self that I'm fighting. Not the horrid driver in front of me. Okay, maybe that's a little biased. Israel, what did they do? They didn't think they had enough food in the wilderness. They grumbled. They complained. Moses, we'd rather be making bricks in Egypt and being whipped and beaten because we'd have good food. And we elevate our tastes and our desires. See, what Satan is trying to convince all of us in this is I don't believe God's way will satisfy. I don't believe the one who created me and knows my every atom, who loves me and who can do all things will meet my needs. It's ridiculous. And so Jesus answers in verse 4, and Jesus answered him, it is written, man shall not live by bread alone. Matthew gives us a little bit more of the quote, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 8.3 here and, and a situation dealing with manna and, and Israel's grumbling. In fact, all of Jesus' answers here are out of Deuteronomy 6-8 through 8, where he's been reflecting on Israel in the wilderness. And he answers the same thing that God answered them. And he's saying, no, no, it's not just about bread. It's not just about your physical desires. We are here for more and we are created for more to be about God's word and his desires and his way for us. And Jesus is countering the idea that God's way is not enough and my desires are more important by saying, no, the bread isn't enough. You can't live on that alone. You need God. And his will and his word. Communion with God. Just something we're going to talk about at the end. Jesus didn't run to, to find a scroll and look up these verses or run to, to BibleGateway.com. He knew these verses. He knew God's word. And so he was equipped and ready to answer and fight temptation. And Jesus' answer says, I will trust God. I will trust his provision, even when it seems like my needs aren't being met. See, our physical desires, our drives is not all there is. If that's the only thing driving us, that's a horrible way to live. It forces us to make choices then between truth and wants. And that's where we so often make the wrong choice when it comes to the temptation of desire and comfort. You know, back to the donut example. If I put a table in the back there and put the, the donuts out, I have really good donuts, and put a sign above them that says, please do not take and eat in the sanctuary. You have a choice now. Do they really mean don't eat the donuts that are sitting in the sanctuary? 
And, and your choice is going to depend on which thing is more important to you, following the rules or having the donut. It's a silly example, but we do the same thing. We see and we want and we are making choices. What's more important, God's way or my desire? And I've got to say, desires are winning more and more in this culture. And that's the battle that is being, being shown here. Is the Word of God valuable to us? Is, are His instructions and His commands important to us? See, if my, if my whole existence is just chasing my needs, following my instincts and my impulses, I'm an animal. That's what animals do. And so this is a choice. Am, am I going to be an animal or, or a, an image bearer? Am I going to let my desires control me or am I going to practice dependence on God? Jesus chooses dependence on God even when he's hungry, even when he doesn't understand. Amazing. The next temptation in verses 5 through 8 is the temptation of power and control or a shortcut in this case to power and control. Satan's word, the devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time, probably in a vision, and all their grandeur and, and the spectacle and the power. And he showed them all. And he said to him, To you I'll give you all this authority and their glory, for it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. And this is a temptation of power and the allure of power and taking a shortcut to get it. Now there's a lot of things we can get into, but, but Satan is called the prince of this world, and he, he has derived power for a temporary time here. And so this is a legitimate offer of the kingdom that Satan has, of the evil kingdom that Satan has. And we know that, that Jesus is going to gain all the kingdoms of the world, and, and God has said, ask of, of the nations and I will give them to you. But see, the path that Jesus is following, God's path goes through the cross and the brutality and the beatings and the torture. And Satan's saying, we don't even have to go there. There is an easier way. Shortcut ahead, as Siri says. Just bow to me. Just a little compromise. One moment, and it's all yours. In fact, we're alone here. Nobody even has to know. What will it hurt? You bow to me. I feel good. I feel like I've won. I give you all the nations. Let's do this a better way than what God had planned. Oh, there's so many things that are appealing there and dangerous there. See, it would still be compromise. It would, it would be sin that would defeat his ability, like we already said, to pay for our sins. And so the kingdom he would inherit would be a broken, sinful, horrid world. And Jesus was about changing hearts and saying, I've come to, to seek and save the lost. I've come to change their hearts, to forgive their sins. And so Jesus doesn't take this shortcut. And he answers with Deuteronomy 6.13. And Jesus answered him, It is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. And it's a reminder that God alone is to be worshipped. He alone is to be our focus. And when we have divided loyalties is where we get into trouble. 
our loyalty is to be to God. Here's a thought. Sin is always an element of worship. Sin is always worship. We're deciding who we're worshiping. I may be worshiping self. I may be worshiping Satan. But when I sin, I am deliberately saying, God is not right. My way is better. And so I'm taking him off of, out of my worship and I'm worshiping something else. This is a worship issue. What or who is most important to you? And, and we are tempted to take shortcuts. Those of you in the business field, you're tempted to take shortcuts every day, I bet. To make compromises to get what you want. To, to get what you want in life. Just fudge the numbers a little bit. Hey, don't tell anyone about this. Don't tell anyone we haven't passed these certs. Let's just, let's just put this through. Hey, a promotion's in it for you. And it's not really going to hurt anyone anyway. And we're tempted to take a shortcut, a little compromise that we don't think has lasting consequences, but it does because we think that the, the, the good outweighs the bad. The ends justify the means is what we fight. The means matter. The means matter. Third temptation. The pride of life. The temptation to do whatever it takes to elevate self. The temptation to be about my glory. Satan's word. And he took him, Satan took Jesus to Jerusalem, set him on the pinnacle of the temple. And this could be, some people think it was the corner of the temple mount looking over the Kidron Valley. Uh, I think it's probably on the temple itself, temple, temple proper, one of the, the high spires there. And he takes Jesus up there and said to him, if you're the son of God, and it's the same thing as the first one, and you are, let's just prove it now. Throw yourself down from here. Let's, let's make a scene. Let's make a spectacle. You throw yourself down from here and let's see what happens. Because, and now, now Satan's caught on. Jesus is quoting scripture. He says, I'm going to quote scripture too. Jesus likes it. For it is written, he will command his angels charged, uh, concerning you to guard you. And on their hands, they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against a stone. And he's, he's misusing scripture to use it to try to manipulate God. And, and before you say, oh, we would never manipulate God. We manipulate God all the time. If I just pray this way, if I just go to church this much, if I just am am serious, maybe then he'll answer my prayer. And we're falling into this. And Satan's like, well, you're you're God. God God the Father, you're the Son of God. God the Father won't let you hurt yourself. Throw yourself down. Then when you're saved and you don't hurt yourself, people will bow to you. They will know you're the Messiah. This is good, Jesus. I'm helping you. But it involves subverting God's plan. Not waiting on God's plan, but pushing God's hand. And it's, a, it's, a, it's the temptation of glory and, and people noticing and the appeal of that significance. And in the end, trying to manipulate God, trying to force His hand, trying to to say this is how you should work God means I think I'm God. Or at least I know more than God. And Jesus' answer, and Jesus answered him and said, you shall not put the Lord your God to the test. 
It's when the, he's referring to when the children of Israel were thirsty and they forced God's hand. They're, they're complaining and Moses goes to God and God finally says, just go hit the rock. But he, he chastises and judges the people for testing him. Trust God's way. We are not above God. Trust him. We know in verse 13, the devil leaves. The temptations are over. He's tempted him in every way. He departs until an opportune time. It means they haven't stopped. This is just a, a temporary reprieve. I just want to give you a couple things, and we've sort of already talked about them, but how do we then take this story and apply this? How do we defeat temptation? The first thing we saw in Jesus is answer temptation with the word of God. Answer temptation with the word of God. Memorize it. Jesus knew it. Now, now I know that we are not a culture that memorizes a lot of things anymore. We don't even memorize phone numbers anymore because you just say, hey, Siri, call Andrew or, or whatever. So, so even that, we don't memorize anymore, right? Don't let that stop you from memorizing Scripture. It is key to, to fighting temptation. In Psalm 119, our, our psalm class did this, and we did this in our purity. Um, Thy word have I hid in my heart, or I, I, I meditate, I, I bring your word into my heart, that I might not sin against you. It's not that it's magic. It's that we're showing a dependence on God's word, and then the Holy Spirit brings those verses up, and, and the image comes up. And, and even on Facebook, I get a friend request last night in the middle of the night. And it's the scantily clad girl, and I know they just send them out to everyone. And immediately these verses on purity come to mind, and it's deny. Mark it as spam. God will bring those verses to mind. Now, now I've just got to say, it is harder to memorize at 50 than it was at 20. Fair enough? Those of you with me, yeah? Do it anyway. It takes work. Do it anyway. That's how serious we need to be about fighting sin. And, and so I'm all about s- systems and, and coming up with a way of doing this. In the back, I have a piece of paper of a verse system. I used to use three-by-five cards in a, in a little index box, and you review some daily and some monthly. And it's a way that you just start putting verses in there, and you can review them. And that's there if you want something tangible. Now I use something on my phone. Technology is good. It's called Scripture Typer. I know, Joy, you use that. And um, it used tools like this. And Scripture Typer does the same thing. I'm not connected with them. I'm not getting any kickbacks or anything like that. Mimlock, I think, has a, a, um, an app too. And you put the verses in, and it, it tests you of how well you know the verse. And then you review it more frequently if you don't know it very well. And it's working. I, I'm trying to change all my memorization to ESV. You get a lot of King James from me. I know that. Uh, I'm trying to change ideas, and it's starting to click in, even in a 50-year-old mind. It's, it's a practical way that really helps with temptation. You know, add some verses in there. You get to pick the verses. Add some verses in there on the area you're struggling with. If it's purity, memorize verses on purity. If it's anger, memorize verses on anger. God's word is powerful. Number two, remind yourself constantly that God's way is best. His way is better than shortcuts. Satan wants to pervert that. But keep that in mind. God wants me to thrive. He wants his good for me. All things will be for his glory. Part of that is we have to understand not everything I want is good. I think it is, 
but those donuts add calories. Three, work on constantly living by the Spirit. Did you catch how, how Luke opens the story? He's full of the Spirit and lives by the Spirit. And, and that again can be like, okay, what does that mean? That's this concept that's way up here. I, I think so much of it is just every day and, and, and throughout the day saying, God, show me what you want me to do through your Spirit. Reveal to me. You, know, you go out in the gym after this, just walking out there and saying, Holy Spirit, show me who you want me to talk to. Show me what you want. And just doing that starts to reorient our mind to living by the Spirit, and it opens up the Spirit to be able to speak to us and, and for us to, to be able to listen to that. And if we're living by the Spirit, there's just no room for some of the temptation. I, I love Martin Luther, what he said about overcoming the devil. He said, well, well, when he comes knocking upon the door of my heart and asks who lives here, the dear Lord Jesus goes to the door and says, Martin Luther used to live here, but he's moved out. Now I live here. When Christ fills our lives, the Holy Spirit fills our lives, Satan has no way in. And so, so much of avoiding temptation is what we're doing before that. See, we want to live our lives on our own, ignore Scripture, ignore the Holy Spirit, maybe dabble in it, come to church on Sunday, and then we get in trouble and we're like, God, help! And the answer has been to be consistent with God the whole time. There is power in faithful consistency. Maybe not a lot of glory, but a lot of power. Four, have an ongoing life of prayer. What was Jesus doing while he was fasting? He was praying for 40 days. What did he do at the baptism? He was praying. Some verses we could look up, but we need to go on. Five, last one, actively fight off temptation. Jesus didn't, didn't just stand there and say, I hope it goes away. Oh, I hope I don't do this. Oh, but that bread looks really good. Oh. He answered. He fought it off. He directly confronted Satan with the word of God. So often we say maybe to sin instead of no. And we're happy with ourselves because we haven't given in right then. Shut the door on it. Slam the door on it. Temptation. Leave no room for it. We come to the table, and we'll, we'll go just a few more minutes. We come to the table, and we end with communion today. And what a precious day to take communion together. When we're seeing how Jesus confronted temptation, he defeated temptation, Because that is what showed he was qualified to then bear our sin on the cross and be our sin bearer. And because of of this incident and and his, his continued faithfulness and vigilance against Satan, because of that, we can celebrate this table. Because all of us have sinned. We've all blown it, right? If you haven't, again, talk to me later. We'll have a nice chat about that. We've all blown We know we've blown it. I've never had anyone say I'm perfect. And so we've all given in to that temptation. And we've failed probably in one of those three areas because what Luke is saying is those typify almost all temptation. And so we deserve death. That's the penalty. But Jesus, who never failed, became the second Adam and he succeeded in the worst of situations where Adam and Eve failed in the best of situations. And he died on the cross. And we just have to look at his sacrifice on the cross and repent of our sins and say, God, thank you, I will follow you. 
I accept that sacrifice. That's what this table's about. Because if we haven't done that, there's not a lot of help for you with temptation. Because Jesus isn't living with you in your heart and indwelling you. But this is the glory of the gift of God. That he then died on the cross as a perfect man and God. And bore the penalty for every one of our sins. And then rose again on the third day, defeating sin like no other. That's the God we serve. That's what we celebrate. Let's pray. Lord God, thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for defeating temptation, but then defeating sin. Thank you for staying on mission and showing us that God's way is the best way. Lord, help us to vigilantly vigilantly fight temptation and sin and follow your example. Thank you for your sacrifice in Jesus' name.